0: The British Academy of Jewelry regularly partners with prestigious brands and inspirational designers for collaborative projects, and soon a selection of BAJ students will embark upon another such endeavour, this time with a Jewelry designer who launched his first collection in 1987 and has since taken his brand from strength to strength. For the BAJ podcast today, I am excited to welcome a Jewelry designer with a clear vision loyal following and iconic style, Alex Munro. Welcome, Alex.
1: Thank you very much. What a lovely welcome that was. You've put me in a good mood already.
0: Great. Alex, can I start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do?
1: So I, uh, I call myself a jewellery maker. I, I design and make jewellery and we sell that all around the world, really. So it's a very international business. I started out with just me in a little workshop and now, amazingly enough, we have 50 people in the business. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of us and, um, and uh, lots going on, I guess. But yeah, I'm, I'm still, I still call myself a jewellery maker.
0: You're very well known. You mentioned it yourself globally. As a jewellery designer, you do head up your own company under your own name. What made you decide to join the industry? Why Jewelry? And could you tell us a little bit more about sort of the ethos you wanted to have in your brand?
1: I think when you're trying to analyse your own reasons for doing things, I think it's it's very possible to come up with lots of different solutions and I, I, lots of different answers to that question. I'm never quite sure which one's true or whether they're all true, but there's an element of me not getting on very well at school, and I wasn't naturally sporty, or or I wasn't uh, I wasn't a you know a, a good looking guy that all the girls liked, or and and I wasn't very good at communicating. Slightly nervous and anxious chap, so I naturally ended up in the art room, um, and this was at a school that was very academic and very sporty and uh, everything. So I, I just gravitated towards the art room. And um, in the art room, I, I wasn't even the best at drawing and painting. But so I, you sort of then end up in the, in the clay modelling and woodwork part of the, of the school. So sort of slightly arty, woodworking, clay modelling, because I wasn't really, wasn't at home anywhere else. And then um, I, I was really lucky to find out that, that you could go to art school and do these things full time. And in art school, I wasn't a very passionate fine artist I just quite like making things so um I did find myself we had a great foundation course and I found myself making uh, they had a jewelry room there and I loved the jewelry and by that time I was I was in my um in my teens and I loved fashion and clothes so um, I actually wanted to do fashion design but I, I wasn't actually good enough at fashion design to get into any unis but jewelry was something that I was good at and was sort of related to fashion and I was making my own jewelry in those days so it was a it was almost on the one hand I could say it was the only and last thing left open to me but on the other I could say that it was a natural drift in that direction it wasn't a I didn't plan it or plot it or anything like that it's just where I ended up and Getting into university, there were some places available at, at a, a university, part of the um, City of London Polytechnic, and and I wanted to leave home and move to London, and so I, I applied for a place there and got in, so sort of a sequence of things, a gradual drift, really. Um, and then, of course, once you've done, I did a four-year course in jewellery making, and uh, when I graduated, I worked waiting tables in a pizza restaurant, but... Basically, there wasn't much, there isn't much left open to a person who has only ever studied how to make jewellery. So I had to, I had to become a jewellery maker because that was all there was to, to pay the bills, really.
0: You could have gone and worked for someone else, but you decided, because I guess that fashion drive and you had a clear sense of wanting to make things yourself, it pulled you into the direction of starting your own business. What were you thinking when you started that business?
1: I have a theory, um, and and like most of my theories, they're unformed yet. So it's a a working theory that there are just basic different human personalities. And so for me, even when I was a kid, if I needed money, I would do something to make money. So quite literally, when I was a kid, I used to cast my own 50-pence pieces because... I thought, I needed money, I'll make money, and I literally made money. <laughs> um, and then and then I might do something like fix up, you know, uh, find an old bicycle that someone had abandoned, and then I'd fix it up and, and, and maybe spend a few quid fixing it up, but then I'd sell it for more than I'd spent on it. So the way I thought was always completely and utterly me on my own finding a way to pay the bills or to save money or... Now, my brother, for example, would always get a job and, and he went to university and he got good qualifications and then he went to work for a big company and, and he's worked his way up in the system. I had other friends that, that joined the army or the police force or, or when I was at school, I had friends that, that wanted to become a surgeon. So they, at the age of 13, they thought, these are the exams I'm going to have to do in order to arrive at this place when I'm when I'm 40 or something. And that kind of mentality was just like way beyond me. I, I was just me doing what I wanted to do at that moment in time without too much interference from anyone else. So I think basically that's a self employed person, you know. So when I graduated from university and I, I needed some money to pay my rent, my immediate thought was well, if I i've got kind of i think i had you know five or ten pounds in my pocket i thought well if i buy some metal i can make it into something nice and sell it for 20 pounds and there there's my money you you know so it was just entirely the way that i thought essentially i'm i'm a sort of born and bred self-employed person and and so it's just my natural state to be now there are a lot of people who i've met along the way who wanted to be self-employed who started their business but they don't have that yeah so that that's just my personality i think i think i didn't have any other options open to me really
0: you also wrote a book which was published in 2014 and you mentioned that you have theories sort of that you're reflecting upon it was titled two turtle doves in which you I might say beautifully portray how you your context past and present has informed your designs. What was the reason for you to write this book?
1: Well, you have reminded me of the fact that I should have given you this answer in my last question. It's not only did I have a, a sort of natural born self-employed person's mentality, but also and maybe more importantly, I think I had I had ridiculously high self esteem or I had a fantasy about my own abilities so I thought of oh, obviously I'll I can start a business and obviously I can sell you know jewelry to shops in Hampstead and you know I, d- I didn't think twice that, that that I might not be able to do it and I think um, what happened with the book was that a, a friend of mine wrote a book and it was it was a huge success and he was all over all the newspapers and I thought I thought well you know if he writes a book I'll write a book and, you know obviously I could write a book but my friend was this Amazingly talented and clever chap called Edmund Duval And his book was called The Hair with the Amber Eyes. And and I no Edmund Duval So it was it was a, 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 a maybe maybe I can call it a mixture of naivety, stupidity, and arrogance. But you know, not bad things to have if you're going to launch yourself in the world and, and try and make a go of things.
0: No, exactly. And I I actually enjoyed reading it. You have an artistic mindset. And it's nice to have an option to read behind what you can see in the in the windshield.
1: <laughs> well, that, that's really kind of you to say because I think often one of the problems with creative people is they're not very good at, at, at saying that, feeling good about themselves and telling people, look what I've done. Uh, I, I felt that I'd read books about sports people and, and sailors and musicians, um, but I'd never read a book that took me into the into the workshop into my world and i think probably a lot of of self-employed craftspeople are actually quite quiet shy people so probably nobody's really wanted to express that but i'm really glad that you say that because that is exactly what i was trying to do was i was trying to just bring people in and and show them the experience of of what i did in my world and what and and how i saw the world because i think it's fascinating and and really um I think it's important to realize that so many people, their brains are wired in different ways and they see the world in different ways and they navigate the world in different ways. And it's all really important.
0: Nature is often the inspiration in your designs. And you talked about that before in your book, and it's very clear from all of your work. In a world where climate change threatens it all, the jewelry industry, is due to reflect, it should reflect and change some aspects of its operations. What are your thoughts on the subject?
1: Yeah, I, I'm really big on the whole thing. I grew up in this in the um 60s and 70s because I'm uh, 57 years old now. But where we were in the middle of nowhere in Suffolk, it was a little bit, it was probably a decade behind the rest of the world. So we were still quite sort of post-war in some ways, and and people would go to the shops and buy things and take them out of their paper bag and then flatten the paper bag and put it in a drawer and take it back to the shops the next day. And we, we had no money, so absolutely nothing was wasted. We had quite a small bin, I remember, a dustbin. We were a family of seven and we had a very small dustbin and it wasn't full at the end of the week. And that included everything for the whole family of seven, so nothing was wasted. I think we didn 't have central heating. some of the rooms didn 't have much electricity, so we often had candles and and um, we used to have to chop firewood if we wanted to be warm and it 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 sounds very old fashioned, but it wasn 't that long ago. So our carbon footprint was really minimal on the planet and um, and, and actually, life was good so when I see now that a small household has two or three huge wheelie bins overflowing at the end of a week, and, and I, I'm afraid I get really distressed when I go to the supermarket and I see uh, people buying things with masses of waste, it just really upsets me. And I'm very lucky. The, the, the person who helps me run my business is Emma, and she's a huge environmentalist, and she thinks the same as me. So. We've always thought that often people would, would think about being good when they were at home, but then they'd go into work and and they and, and the business would be leaving the lights on and having the heating on with the windows open and and buying lots of things and throwing away things when they break and just being appalling and also not tracing the accountability of all their actions and things they buy. So me and Emma have always been appalled by this and we've thought if, if we're going to do it at home, we're going to do it it through our work too. So this has been something that we've pursued probably right from the start actually. But the nice thing about these days is that it's easier to find information. There's no excuse now to use a material or a stone and say actually I'm not quite sure where that's come from or what the environmental impact for that is anymore. It's a personal thing on the one side but on the other side our customers are taking the time to to do a bit of research and and i think particularly if you're if you're going to get married and you want to buy a ring with a stone in you don't want to have something that has caused destruction and harm on the planet to either people or nature because it's just you know it's a bad thing all round so so for me it's really not not a no-brainer and also there's there's absolutely no excuse because because it's good business you know, like like you can't use the excuse that it's going to cost more or be more difficult. It's good business and and it just makes sense. So, yeah, I, uh, the jewellery industry obviously is a, is my industry. But if I buy something from another company, I bought a piece of equipment the other day and I researched the company and they gave me all their green credentials. And when it arrived, it had been packed in polystyrene. So... I'm I'm fighting a, a battle with them to get them to change their packaging and they're being very responsive to it but but we all have a responsibility to try not to muck up the future for for the planet and nature and our children and grandchildren so yeah, I quite enjoy doing it as well it's quite nice you know it doesn't doesn't reduce your quality of life at all it often it, it, it enhances it
0: yeah do you feel that there is an educational component to your business. I can tell from your website there is a beautiful section on on sustainability and and it's very clearly laid out and and understandable. Do you think that's important and more businesses should dedicate time and resource to to this as well?
1: Well certainly I I think as a business we're really lucky because we're we run a successful business. So I I I hope that perhaps um, businesses starting up and the rest of the industry would look at success stories and say, I'm interested in that. How did they do it? So I do feel that as a success story, I have a responsibility to, to say that we were successful because we've we've taken care of these issues. Um and I think probably, I mean, it's all very well me recycling our plastic bags and and, and trying and not buying plastic into the business and buying ethical stones. That's great. That that makes a difference. But I think you also need to set an example, campaign for the things that you think are right, and show people that it is the right thing to do and show business that it's a it's a profitable thing to do. And actually, you know, business isn't just about making money. There's there are other functions for business and businesses like mine. I I quite understand that we do need to make a profit in order to be a surviving business. But that isn't the be all and end all. You know, there's there's it's what's also important is the impact we make on the world. And I think by telling that to other people, you can help other people take that plunge and have a go and take things seriously. So. So, yeah, I think it's important to talk about it.
0: What's your definition of success that you've sort of set for yourself?
1: This is, a, this is something that's quite important for me, is that success is can be measured in, in whether you reach your goals and you're, you're being fulfilled from your work. Uh, um, so a jeweler that is self-employed, that works part-time and has a part-time job and works from a, a, a shed in the bottom of the garden or, or a spare room or something like that, And makes lovely work and is fulfilled by that work and and produces that work out into the world, and other people buy the work and enjoy it and love it, is absolutely maybe more successful than me. I think there's a real problem. When I meet people, they say, uh, you know, like one of the questions is, how many shops do you have? Or how many people do you employ? And when I'm asked, how many people do I employ? And I say, well, it's it's probably more than 50, they kind of, their eyes widen, they go, wow, you know, how did you get to be so successful? And I have to say, no, really, employing 50 people isn't a measure of success. It can be a bit of a headache sometimes. And that's only a success if that's your goal and that's what you want out of life. But essentially, when it comes to making jewellery, it's about being fulfilled, about creating something, about sharing that with other people and adding something to the world in the way that you want to do it so yeah success is a really loaded word i think and it often means financial success or or perceived size of the business which is really a load of rubbish that isn't how what i would call success anyway
0: i think that's really inspirational to hear because like you say personality wise running a large company will require certain skill sets and spending time on certain things that you might not necessarily envision when you first start thinking about running a business like this my next question sort of follows on you've been going for 30 years could you tell us how it's changed throughout the years and what do you feel has been the key to to success sustaining for such a long time and would you have any advice for any jewelers sort of thinking, well, actually I do want to create more jobs for jewelers, and I want to have a big brand and I actually want to manage a team rather than spend time at the bench. What what do you think is sort of the, the plan to get started?
1: How it's changed, that's an interesting one because in many ways it's changed beyond recognition, but in other ways nothing has changed at all. What we're doing is we're we're having a, an idea or a thought and the way that we express that idea or thought is to make something that you can wear and the point is that we somehow communicate that to another person who gets what you're doing and says yes I want to express this as as well or I want to understand this I want to be part of this and so then they they'll buy it and wear it and that transaction that human to human transaction is exactly the same as when I first made a piece of jewellery back in the 80s so right back in the 80s I made some earrings I had a nice idea I bought some copper and I I handmade them they were based on some Anglo-Saxon axe designs but I thought you know this is this is late 80s so people were wearing earrings the size of dinner plates and it was all like romanticy sort of stuff. So it was this was really talking about what I wanted to talk about. And I made these earrings that I thought looked fabulous. And I took them to a shop in Hampstead, and the it was kind of a cool clothes shop, something out music, and they went, Yeah, I, I really like what you've got. So they took them and sold them to some customers who loved them, who told their friends who came back to buy more. And so the, so the shop phoned me up and said, Hey, they sold out. Can you do some more? Which I did. And you know, that's exactly, exactly, exactly the same as, as what I do today. The difference is in all the details. So it's how you communicate with people, how you talk with people. But I, I still feel that what I'm doing is a person to person transaction. So it's no different than having a friend or someone you love and saying come around for supper and cooking them a delicious meal and you kind of think i know it's a bit cold so i'm going to make something warming or my friend's been a bit down so i'm going to make something homey and you 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 think about the person and you create it and you make something with your hands and they get it and enjoy it and you share that that thought so that's exactly the same the only problem is now that you have to be really sassy about social media about how you communicate those messages so in back in my day when I did a catalogue I would sit there with all the pieces of jewellery and I'd draw them on a piece of paper and I'd take that to the photocopying shop and we photocopied photocopy that 10 times and that would be and then I'd staple it and that would be my catalogue well now you have to take really great photos and have model shots and get it on Instagram and get influencers to like it and all that kind of stuff but the, the essence is the same but the way you go about it is different and most people that have got into trouble because i've been in the, in the business long enough to see businesses rise and then fall is because they've they've taken their eye off that essential transaction and, and what they are and what they're trying to do you can see the same in restaurant chains you know you might have a lovely chef like Antonio Carluccio who has the best restaurant in London and then it's a great idea because it opens another couple of restaurants and they're fantastic and you get the best meal of your life. And then they all forget what it's all about and their chain opens and the food's rubbish and it goes bankrupt. It's, it's, it really isn't rocket science. you just got to remember what you're doing. I think it is very tricky for young people to follow in my footsteps and set up a business in the same scale as mine because I've actually bought two plots of land in London and built workshops and shops and I think probably that isn't going to be possible for a lot of people now because rent and you know uh, everything's so so difficult so my daughter is a graduated from art school and she's a she's a painter but she loves weaving and textiles and pottery and when I was starting out I could have found an old disused warehouse in Deptford and I could have got on with it but now everything's so expensive it, it is it is tougher but it's still very possible I'm, i know young creative people who are making fantastic jewelry and are actually making a living at it you know and and it has so much potential that it can grow and they'll be able to get there I think back in the 80s there were sort of well well before me there were Wright and Teague and Dinny Hall and and then there was me and a couple of other people but there was there was any sort of five or six people who managed to sort of break through and make a go of it. It was a, partly a combination of being prepared to be absolutely skint and work seven days a week, 12 hours a day. And I, I kind of think probably that's the same now is, is that I'm not sure how big or clever it is really to struggle for so long but you've got to be a bit of a marathon runner I think
0: it can take a lot of effort and energy and again going back to that definition of success is that really what they'd want or is that just an idea that we get imposed of success on our own dreams and realities
1: it can be disheartening that that it's not purely based on merit you will always get someone who's you know, mummy and daddy are well-known people, and who work at Vogue for a, for a year, and then they leave and set up their own brand, and then every celebrity wears it, and it's it's just all laid out for them on on a platter, and that's really disheartening. If you come from a place of, I'm not going to say disadvantage, but if you come from a place of sort of normality where you don't have those automatic leg ups. It can be really disheartening. You keep seeing these people who, who things seem to fall in place so easily. For most of us, we just have to accept that it's a, it's a grind and a struggle and really bloody hard work. And and is the um, is the prize worth you know? Do you really want it that much? Um, because there are so many wonderful careers you can have in the jewellery industry, and and the path I took is really gruelling and takes a toll on on all sorts of things relationships health all sorts of things so you know do you do you really want it that much i think is something worth asking
0: you enjoy sharing your skills and insights with people and customers can book workshops and sort of engage with the making of a design do you think this kind of engagement with customers for your brand and yourself or your staff is an important element of the business?
1: Well, certainly I love doing that. And again, that's a bit of the show-off in me is I I, I love jewellery so much that I love showing other people how to do it. I think when it comes to selling jewellery, it's no good just showing a photograph of your piece You need to engage with people and you need to tell them the story and people will always have money and people will always want to buy jewelry, but when they're choosing where they're going to spend that money, they want to have a bit of fun and a bit of interest. So me personally, I love a good cheese shop or a fishmonger when you can go in and the guys tell you, yeah, this is just in and this farmer made it in this way, you know, I can be sold stuff. I hate going to the supermarket and buying something that I don't know anything about that's wrapped up in plastic. I know you have to sometimes. So so yes, I think that's that's tremendously important. And also, as a brand, we first were made our name in Japan, and Japan has a very different approach to customer care and how they deal with customers. So whether it's in a restaurant or anything, they really think that the customer is important, and they're really proud of what they're doing, and they really want to, tell the customer all about it and and, and again, have this wonderful person to person exchange of, of, of what's going on. So that's what I learned about how important customers were and actually they're the people that pay all the bills. And so, you, you know, you really need to take, take them seriously and and really engage and entertain and enthuse. And, and I think things are just gonna be much easier if you can do all that.
0: You are obviously also engaging with the British Academy of Jewelry, another sort of angle of skills sharing, uh, not only for the podcast but also a collaborative project with the students titled "Adaptability, Versatility, Longevity." Could you tell us a little bit more about the inspiration behind the project and what you're sort of expecting? And firstly, the
1: uh, BHA is is important to me because for quite a while I've been I've been really interested in how people enter into the jewellery industry and there is an element of my route was sort of university uh, route which was in actual fact is quite a sort of privileged way of getting in because you're if, if you have enough time to study at university and particularly now when it's very expensive and then once you've studied you haven't you know it's not like a big earning course where you're going to come out in, 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 and land a great job with a great wage packet that's kind of quite a privileged person's route into the jewellery and um, I've noticed it in in other industries because I love this industry it's it's so much better for us in the industry if it's open to everybody because then we're going to get this massive talent and diversity into the industry which will make it so much stronger and will ultimately be good for for me but it'll be good for everyone so the um, major is brilliant because it's a very um what what's the word a very democratic way into the into the jewelry industry so it, it's it's my kind of place i like what you do i like the way that you that that you engage with people and, and introduce people into the industry so this so that's great the project that i was uh, interested in because we've talked a bit about um the environment and sustainability my one of my big things is actually about jewelry that lasts a long time and that can be worn for a variety of of circumstances so it's almost the opposite of fast fashion which is something that I'm really kind of struggle with the whole principle of fast fashion so and we were actually just working on a project with a with a lovely guy called um, Raven Smith where we ended up talking about the idea of what's called coach earrings where, where you might have a diamond earring and it might have a, a ball or something that goes over the earring to conceal the diamond, which would allow you to travel into the, um, the venue or whatever you were going to do and, and away again. So, so you could sort of wear them for one thing and then another thing. So I was interested in, in talking about, sorry, I'm jumping around a bit here because I also do, I judge quite a lot of um, competitions and things. And one, one of the categories that always comes up is environment and sustainability. And generally, when people address that, they will use uh, reclaimed materials, uh, recycled materials, and they sort of cut up an old car tire or something like that. And the problem I have is that the absolute number one criteria for jewellery is it's got to be gorgeously, you've just got to want to have it and wear it. That's, every piece of jewellery has to pass that test. It has to be gorgeous. And sometimes people were sidetracked by the brief description and would produce something that was incredibly environmentally friendly, but was really unattractive. And, no, and I just thought, God, nobody's going to want to wear that blooming thing, you know. So a good approach to a- a- environmentalism is to have something that has longevity and adaptability. So I love the idea of jewellery that that someone could wear into the into the office for example, and look great and feel great. But then when they have a, a, a glamorous, do an awards ceremony or a, or a dinner party afterwards, they can do something with it, add something or, or, or unclip something or reveal something so that it serves more than one function. So so rather than having to buy two or three pieces of jewelry and all the environmental impact that takes, you just buy one and it's gonna cover all the bases. So I was I was just really interested to get Enthusiastic, young, creative people's view on that. Now, I have no idea what they're going to come up with, but I hope we have some kooky and funny and engaging solutions to that problem because I just think it'd be really good fun to see some. A different way of thinking about things that's what I'm that's what I'm after.
0: That transformation and then the connection that it creates between the wearer and the object that's what you say is sort of the real strength to sustainability because if people care about the object if they're engaged by it then people will want to keep it pass it on to their relatives.
1: Absolutely I I guess in the old days jewelry was super sustainable because you have a load of diamonds on on mark and and then they'd be broken up for her kids and they'd they'd be passed on through the family and and also you used to have sort of earrings could then go on to a necklace or you know that's what used to happen but this was really the preserve of the very very elite rich people in society and i'd quite like to see a bit of that philosophy come down to to normal people you know someone who works in a shop or in an office or 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 something like that. I'm kind of interested in that. There's a great history of it. I mean, there'll, there'll be all sorts of research can be done because there a, there's a long history of it in um, in jewellery. And I bet that other civilizations and on other continents, other people will have come up with a very similar sort of um, approach to things. And so it'd be really great to see how other people have approached it. So it'd be nice to see a bit of research and, and just some kind of cookie... ways of talking about this and and exploring it like I say the the absolute be all and end all is you've got to end up with a gorgeous piece of jewelry that's that's the thing is that it just has to look nice and wear nice and someone's got to see it and go i want that because that is gorgeous and it, it, it i want to wear it
0: a little bit of research into wearing it yourself and sort of the psychology of us caring for our object is something i think the students certainly would have to look at as part of this brief which is inherently connected to sustainability and creating the passion for people to keep things your designs are all handmade in the uk Is that a decision that you consciously made? And how important do you think it is for craft and jewellery skills to continue to be passed on and supported also in the UK?
1: So I think I can go back to my analogy. If you have a friend and you want to be generous to them, you would say, come round to my house and I'm cooking you a lovely supper. And if you you would cook... The food, according to what you thought would engage them, so it might be something from their home country, or it might, you know, might be homey It might be I don't know what. But um, and then you'd sit there and you'd share that food and you'd discuss it and you'd you there would be a sort of human to human interaction. Now the other alternative would be to get a takeaway delivered, and and so I guess that's how I see jewelry. Like, on, there's nothing wrong with the takeaway if, if that's what you want. But that isn't what I'm interested in. I'm interested in making something with my hands, considering something, thinking about it, wanting to express it, making it with my hands, giving that to another human being who is then going to wear it and enjoy it and get so much from it. So that's just what I'm interested in. I have three kids. When they make me a beautiful birthday card, I keep it. Um, they haven't yet, but if they buy me a a standard one from, you know, W.H. Smith's or somewhere, it'd be nice, but I'll throw it away after my birthday. (laughs) So, so, um, yeah, it's all about, it's all about that now. But for me, it was, it it made sense because if I, I would buy some materials, make a piece of jewelry and sell it. And I could tell the people about how I made it and all the work that went into it. And I could charge a, a proper amount of money for that. And then when I started selling in Japan, they loved the idea that I was in my workshop and me and my friends were in my workshop. We were all making the jewellery. So it became, uh, I could command the prices I wanted. Um, it, particularly in this awful time of coronavirus, it's shown us that some companies who've been reliant on importing jewellery from from overseas... And their supply chains have been broken off. They've really gotten into trouble. Whereas we're we're just in the workshop making things, so we've been able to we can respond to changes in uh, political and social climate, and and we can make relevant things. We can we can do quick projects. Where when the uh, the fires in Australia, we were able to make a lovely parakeet and sell that to raise money for them. So it leaves you flexible, it gives you a great deal of security in your production and it allows you to command higher prices. But I guess the underlying thing is that I just really like making things. You know, I became a jeweller because I like making things. So why on earth would I would I stop making things, you know? That just wouldn't make any doesn't make any sense to me.
0: And do you think that within the UK we're on a turning point towards sort of recognising these skills again and sort of understanding that they are very important for us to also hold on to them from a sort of heritage point of view.
1: Yeah, I think there's a danger um, when it comes to craft. There are, there are several danger points. There's the, there's the idea of craft as a sort of knitting toilet roll covers at Christmas, which is, which is lovely, but that's more sort of hobby sort of stuff. And there's definitely a resurgence in nostalgia. And you use the word heritage. And my work has an element of nostalgia in it because I love the idea of referring to, to the past, but jewelry and handmaking jewelry, like half the people I know are are the most coolest, most avant-garde people. These are, these are avant-garde artists who are making jewelry. And this is, this is futuristic, you know, this is like cutting edge and, and avant-garde, it isn't just heritage. I so I don't like, I'm not comfortable in the idea of thinking about preserving heritage. What I like the idea is of creating an industry that is modern, future-looking uh, uh, and, and is, is ready to take on the world and this new generation that you're training. You know we're going to kind of take on the world and, and beat them at this fantastic game of jewelry but it's a very avant-garde uh, futuristic thing not a, a heritage well of course we're using skills that have been the, the same the same forever so there is a heritage angle to it but I, I don't want the jewelry industry to become a a museum thing it's a it's it's a living thing and it's and it's forward looking and it's at the cutting edge of of, of where we're going with things. So, yeah, I think um handmaking is um I mean, I suppose you could what could we compare it to? Something like um tailoring or sewing, you know. Nobody thinks that fashion is is heritage and we're preserving a heritage craft. We 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 look at fashion as being, well, these guys, these handmakers, people that cut patterns and sew things up. These are, the, these are the people that are, that are carving out the future and forging ahead for the future. And I see that in a lot of young people when it comes to jewellery. We're using hand skills, but you might be using techniques that have been around for thousands of years. But the way we're using them, the way we're thinking about them is, is forward looking and progressive.
0: Fashion is a beautiful analogy because you have often collaborations with radical thinkers and very skilled crafts people who have such a knowledge of the skills and techniques. And when those two find a way to come together, you can have some really amazing results.
1: Absolutely. That's it's such an exciting place to be. So yeah, that's that's how I see the the future of the jewelry industry.
0: Originality is important in today's competitive market. And over the years you have stayed true to your aesthetic, but you've evolved your brand to perhaps also reach customers of different price point is this something that you believe is important was that conscious or did that just sort of happen
1: well i suppose a bit of both i mean i think it's so one problem you have because i've i've always associated myself with the fashion industry more than the jewelry industry i think that's been quite helpful so i do fashion shows i do paris new york uh, berlin tokyo um fashion shows and i show my jewelry there and what happens is you do a collection and it, and it goes down well and then um, your buyers and press are going to come back and say, that was a great success, what are you doing next? And what the great conundrum is, that they want exactly the same but completely different. So um, as, a, as a sort of seasonal jewellery designer working in the fashion industry, how do you give people more of the same but make it completely different? And, and it's an possible um, square to circle. So one way you do it is you you recognize your personality and style and signature and voice, and then experiment around your core values. And and so uh, it's important to try stuff. Now I'm not the most kooky, crazy jewelry designer. You know, I tend to make things that are quite pretty and wearable, But we also have a bit of fun and do some quite expressive pieces. We did a collaboration with Sophia Webster, a shoe designer. We did these huge, great ear cuff things. But they were very obviously my signature behind them, but they were kind of kooky pieces. Um, And we've just done this non-gender-specific collaboration with Raven Smith, and and we do all sorts of bits and bobs. So I think it's important to remain enthusiastic, energetic, forward-looking, and always be willing and, be, and have fun in sort of trying new things and, and, and breaking a few boundaries and risking stuff because it's very easy to get a bit boring after a while. So I think so long as you retain that energy and enthusiasm and, and youthful thoughts behind your work, you're, it's, it's going to continue to progress um, and develop.
0: How do you deal with, you know, when you take risk, which I also believe is super important to remain sort of fresh because you can learn much more from mistakes than you can from successes. How do you sort of hold on to that idea and not get taken back by sort of fashion criticism, which can be challenging?
1: So the fashion, I, I say, I talk about the fashion industry because, you're making things to be worn. So I'm using the word fashion in the sense that it's things to be worn. So I, from a very early age, I realized that I I didn't want to make jewelry to be put into a gallery. I didn't want to make jewelry to be locked in a safe. I wanted to make jewelry that people would wear and wouldn't take off. And, And so I've been very lucky to have managed to get to that place. The fashion industry is a, is a actually, it's a hard, really hard meritocracy. And a meritocracy I don't necessarily think is a good thing in a lot of places in society. But I really enjoyed it because um, actually what happens is you go to Paris Fashion Week, you present a collection, you have the confidence behind that collection, and you meet the buyers and you go, no, I'm confident, this is good, people are going to like it. If you buy it, it'll sell through, and you'll make money. And then, and then, and then you take an order from them. You deliver it, and then they come back six months later, and either it sold or it didn't sell. Now, if it didn't sell, they're not—they're never going to order from you again, and you're going to go out of business. But if it did sell, they're going to come back and say, "Yeah, okay, that sold. What have you got for me this time?" And you need to come up with the goods again. So it's brutal. You know, you could be. At any point, you could be out of a job, out of business, if you don't come up with the goods and, and, but it's all done on numbers. It makes no difference if someone says, if some, you know, it person says that they like it or it's seen on someone. It's basically all about the numbers and how it sells in the shops and how, how ordinary people see it, understand it, and whether they want to part with their hard earned cash to buy it. So it's a brutal, uh, democratic uh, meritocracy, but I really enjoyed it because I've I've been lucky enough to make that work. So so no, it's worked for me, and I, and I think also you can it it's visible. You, you know the numbers are there. You can see if something sells or not. Um, and so it's it's been an easier world for me to navigate because it's quite clear and black and white. So I found it very enjoyable. I haven't enjoyed. I think some people have the perception of the fashion world as being something. Quite amorphous that you can't quite get your hand on, and and it, it's if 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 some some person that you don't know says they like something, then everyone buys it. But actually, that isn't what it's about. It's 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 a hard, a really hard nuts and bolts industry. Um, so I found that quite enjoyable.
0: I have a last question, and that is, aside from the upcoming project with BAJ, what are you working on? Is there anything that you have in store for us that we should be looking out for? Uh,
1: yes, there is. Basically, I'd say watch, watch out the website. So we have regular meetings, and we've almost got too many things to to mention. Uh, coming out before Christmas, we've got some great, and then we're going to have some great kind of archive sales and things after Christmas. But we've got some uh, some really fun collaborations with Friends of the Earth. Uh, coming out before Christmas I think the thing that I'm most excited about is that which we haven't announced at all in the world yet is that I've been working on my own podcast where I've been talking to people about the jewellery they own and why it's important to them because I'm fascinated in in what jewellery means to people and I always think us jewellers are sort of trying to think that we know, but actually it's the people that wear jewellery that are the important ones. So I've been meeting people, some of them, we've got some really fun celebrity, well-known actors and people, but we also have some artists and other people who have the most incredible stories behind pieces of jewellery that they own and wear. And some of the stories are so dark. We've had, you know, people crying. Um, There was one occasion where I asked my interviewee about the next piece of jewellery. And he picked it up and looked at it and burst into tears. So it's this amazing connection that we have. So I guess I'm essentially, I'm interested in exploring why we need a physical object, physical manifestation of some massively important emotion, and why, and why jewellery is different to other objects. Why? An object that we wear is different to an object that we have on our uh, sideboard, and why we need it, and why it's so important, because it's been important to humans since, since forever. We've we've had these fascinating stories also of, of people who've lived in really poor conditions, where their where they've been living has been burnt down, and they've escaped, and the only thing you can escape with is the things that you're wearing. And so once again, jewellery has this incredible uh uh, difference from everything else is that you wear it and it's it's always on you so in some respects it can be you can sell it to get your next meal or to get on a boat to escape from somewhere or it it has all these different functions and this is the this is the industry we're in so i just think it's it's all of these reasons for people owning and wearing jewelry need to be explored a bit more and i haven't really heard enough about it we have exhibitions about intellectualizing jewelry or artistic jewelry and we have exhibitions about historical jewelry with with some great gemstone who was owned by a by a queen or something but what about the jewelry that that you and i are wearing and that you and i care about that's what interests me so i'm doing a podcast on that i'm hoping it's going to come out uh it's kind of new yeary in between christmas and new year And um, I'm hoping that it's going to go, it's going to be good, but I'm working on it at the moment and I'm a bit of a novice at podcasting. So we'll, uh, we'll see. (laughs) All
0: right. That sounds really exciting. I'm certainly looking forward to it. Okay. To sort of end, our world is facing a range of challenges and the topics discussed as well as the new project titled adaptability, versatility and longevity are timely and necessary with An iconic designer like Alex taking the opportunity to engage with the next generations in these questions and continuing to promote ethical and British-made working practices, a clear example is set that can be followed. Thanks so much, Alex, for your time sketching your inspirational journey and joining BAJ in this collaborative project. We're super grateful for your time and efforts.
1: Thank you so much. It's been really nice to chat and thanks for the opportunity to uh, for me to get involved with this. It's really good fun.
0: Brilliant. Next month, I'll be joined by another guest. So watch this space to find out who it is. For now, this was Sophie Boons for the BHA podcast series Adaptability, Versatility and Longevity with Alex Monroe. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.